Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. I am your host, Nick A.R. Johnson, and we have a very special guest here for today's show. First time appearance on the Deep Dives podcast, one of our new No Ceilings members and the first one to hop on the Deep Dives feed, Rowan Kent. Rowan, how are you doing this fine evening? Doing great. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. I, you know, try to get everybody on, but it's always fun whenever there's a first time guest on here and We've got a special article to talk about. So we are going to talk about your article for Wednesday about Judah Mintz. And for Stephen Gillespie and Stephen Gillespie alone, you will be listening to this podcast before the article goes live on NoSealingsNBA.com. But for everybody else, the article will almost certainly be live by the time you're listening to this. So be sure to check that out on NoSealingsNBA.com. And Rowan, I wanted to start with sort of a general question. Why did you choose to write about Judah Mintz for your article this week? When I was thinking about the next baller I wanted to get in as the Magic 8 baller for this week. There's so many guys that are coming back to college basketball this year. They tested the waters. Stock last year, I mean, a lot had to do with Wembenyama, the Twins, Scoot Henderson. A lot of guys wanted to take their chance, see if they could improve their stock. And a guy that I had looked at more and more in the offseason in Judah Mintz, I was really, really interested in getting a chance to dive deeper into his game to see what I could try and pick out because there's so much that's interesting about what he brings to the table in terms of both sides of the ball, how to scout it, how to be looking into what he could bring at the next level. And there is uncertainty. And the way that's super exciting to see a guy like Wemby and know that he's going to have a really exciting, extravagant entrance into the league with room to grow. It's just as cool to think about players like Mintz who have really clear strengths, have places that he can still be working to improve his game, and to get to live in that uncertainty and explore it. It's some of the most fun that you can have in the draft space is getting into that uncertainty because ultimately nobody really knows, right? I mean, there's a reason that, you know, say even the best people in the draft space get a whole lot of things wrong with the top of their boards by the time even draft day comes around, much less, you know, looking at it two, three years down the line. I do have to mention, you managed to say dive deeper within the first two minutes of the Deep Dives podcast. That's That's got to be some kind of record. So I'll hand it to you for that. But in terms of sort of the sophomore concept, you lead the piece with talking about a sophomore slump. And I wanted to sort of get into that more generally before we dive deep. There we go again into the specifics with Judah Mintz. And, you know, as you as you mentioned in the piece, there are 13 second year college players in our No Ceilings preseason draft guide. But it's a real roller coaster for a lot of different players. I mean, you mentioned, you know, someone like Kobe Bufkin, Johnny Davis, Devin Vassell, you know, all guys who were, you know, maybe potential picks, potential maybe even first round picks after their freshman year, come back for another year. And all of a sudden they have a lot more responsibility and they do well with it. I mean, you know, the biggest example in my mind, the one that I think I'll hold on to for a while is the difference between freshman year Jaden Ivey and sophomore year Jaden Ivey. But, you know, 
there are also examples of guys who went the other direction. And, you know, I think you hit on one of the key ones here with Terquavion Smith, right? Someone who might have been a first round pick if he'd come out after his freshman year and instead he returns for another year, doesn't improve in the ways he needs to, and, you know, ends up getting un- ends up going undrafted. And it'll be fascinating to see sort of which of those paths Judah Mintz goes down. But you know, it's a it's a big thing where there are a lot of these highly recruited freshmen who come in, think they're going to be one and done. And, you know, again, as you mentioned in the piece, the returning crop has a very wide range of variants. Yeah, I when I think about guys choosing to come back, while it might seem like they are doing so and they are hoping for like more certainty from their role, the draft cycle, the way analysis works at the level of writers, front offices, there are more weaknesses that'll be nitpicked coming back than there will be strengths highlighted. It's right. more often that for a guy like Turquavian, when he came back, his shooting percentages, what could he show that was different? Could he tighten up the handle, his efficiency? And he, again, he had a very comparable on paper season to the one before. He was doing a great job leading that team, but Coming back, getting a whole another offseason in the program, getting in his case, and I think in Mintz's case as well, potentially even more keys to the offense, the expectations are raised. You not only have to, if you are coming back, raise your game, but you need to show a whole new side. It makes it extremely stressful <laughs> as sort of a concept that way, but there are guys, as we talked about, Buffkin. Davis, they step into these roles and it can really help to boost you up with your stock as well. If you, I mean, Mintz is still a young player. It's not like he came in after a post-grad year and then is here on the Orange. He'll have that same opportunity that a lot of guys have had to take that step up and be the kind of player that he wants to be. And that's what's exciting about diving into that film and then getting to see him in these first games this week for Syracuse too to see if he can take that next step and point his game in a new direction while doing the same things he was really highly touted for. I think you hit on a really key point with how returners are nitpicked because you know the expectation is sort of you know especially for the top guys in their high school class right they come in they are stars in their first college seasons and then they move on to the NBA and you know part of the deal with draft evaluation and just how wide these sort of swings are is, you know, there's a different reason for every player, right? I mean, for Jaden Ivey, you know, he came back to school, his three point percentage went from in the twenties, his freshman year to, you know, 40%, most of his sophomore year, you know, had a bit of a dip at the end, but ultimately he showed, you know, I'm not a non shooter, you know, there's definitely still development there. And, you know, he struggled with his three point shot in his rookie season, but yeah, that was the big thing for him is, okay, he returned, he showed serious growth in a way that was important. And on the flip side with Terquavion, I mean, my biggest concern for him coming back was, would he be able to add strength? Would he be able to get better at driving to the basket rather than just being a pure sort of pull-up shooter type? And he didn't really. And the fact that, you know, he showed that the rest of his game is, you know, still there, right? Like, he didn't regress particularly, but he didn't take that leap that he really needed to. And, you know, because he was a returning player, everybody highlighted that and, you know, sort of glossed over the fact that 
no, this guy got even more offensive, you know, or even more defensive attention than he had the year before with Darius Ebron there as well. And he continued to hit those pull-ups, right? It was just the one area that he kind of needed to show improvement on. The fact that he didn't show that improvement there was almost treated as a regression that he didn't develop in that return to college. Yeah, exactly. And that's in a lot of ways the danger. It makes sense. There are a lot of reasons in some ways if the draft stock isn't that solidified for players to return to the college game now. There are opportunities to make money at that game. There are opportunities to continue to be in an environment on a college campus. Could be close to home. Could be a place with a coaching staff you believe in. And yet you are walking a bit of a tightrope where even just doing the same is probably not going to get you the space, all of the attention, and the hype you'd want. So let's dive more into the specifics of Judah Mintz's game now that we've sort of gone over some of the you know, philosophical difficulties of the sophomore slump. And with Judah Mintz, we will... <laughs> We will get into the defense as best we can when attempting to evaluate a Syracuse prospect under Jim Bo- uh, Beheim on the defensive end. But on the offensive end with Judah Mintz, I think the thing that stood out to me the most, and I will admit he was a very confusing eval for me last year, and I'm sure he will be again this year. But mm-hmm. the part that stands out to me that you highlighted is that he's someone who can run the offense, but not just for himself. You know, he's someone who is arguably at his best when he's making plays for others. And part of that is him being able to take advantage of the gravity that he has. But part of that is also that I think he, if anything, is a bit underrated as a passing talent. Yeah. As a guy who steps on in his freshman year to a college campus is given a lot of the ball handling roles, operating the high pick and rolls, being able to spread the like the ball to shooters. When you have Joe Girard, it makes sense that you'd want to be spreading the ball. But a lot of the reads, the more that I was watching him, I wouldn't say there anything where it immediately flags to the top of my board as, ooh, this is a guy who is creating angles for guys and creating the space. But it's above the level of just hitting the right read. He was able to get it into a shooter's pocket. He can place passes that need to be zippier. He can float them over guys, anticipating when two are coming to the ball when Edwards is rolling early. I saw a lot of stuff that is translatable, and that's Mm -hmm. what stuck out. Running pick and roll so many times at the Syracuse games, he's going to get those same opportunities when he's drafted to the NBA. The experience he's gotten already, the fact that he's not just going to be hunting his own shot, he'll be ready to play within an offense as a ball handler, is when I had been watching him before, hadn't jumped out as much until I took the time to go through like every freshman game that he had watched sure. and really sink my teeth into seeing what he would do with the ball in his hands. So just some numbers quickly to sort of back up the film stuff you're talking about with Judah Mintz. Basically, when you include passes to his offensive play types on Synergy, pretty much every time he jumps up, like pick and roll ball handler without passing, you know, is worse than his pick and roll ball handling with passing. Granted, it's 67th percentile versus 68th, so not that much of a jump. But, you know, when you're talking about transition, again, same sort of deal. You know, his numbers improve when he's being 
a playmaker for others rather than just being a pure, you know, we're talking about Tarkadion Smith, right? Like someone who's purely an attacking offensive player. He actually is more efficient when he's creating opportunities for others, you know, by the numbers, which matches up with what you're talking about with the, with the eye test stuff. But there's one sentence in the piece that I do want to get to, which longtime listeners are going to be incredibly upset and roll their eyes when they say this, because I find a way to shoehorn this conversation into pretty much every episode. But the element where, so I'm just going to read your sentence verbatim because you do a lot better with it than I'm going to do off the cuff. Mints can put any speed or pace on the ball when he attacks, freezes defenders with hesitations, and has a deep bag of dribble moves in the 2024 draft class. So the thing I want to highlight here that stands out to me is it always impresses me when a younger guard is able to mix speeds. And the part that I always bring up to ad nauseum is, you know, watching De'Aaron Fox's development very closely for the Kings, where he came into the league as arguably the fastest player in the NBA, you know, if not the fastest, certainly up in the top five, top 10 range. And his first season in the NBA, he really struggled because he was going hundred miles an hour all the time. And if you only have one speed, even if you're the fastest guy on the court, you know, defenses can adjust, you know, they can anticipate a little bit better. They realize, okay, I need to drop back earlier if I'm going to contest him at the rim. And he really struggled with that. His sophomore year, he started, developing you know he got much better as a mid-range pull-up shooter and you know he got more comfortable with hesitations and all of a sudden you know he's able to take better advantage of his speed because he has multiple gears that he's shifting between and so with judah mince i mean having that skill as a college freshman is really impressive especially since some nba players don't really ever pick it up and the ones that do you know it tends to take them at least a few years of nba playing time yeah what stands out for me mince speed wise is anytime I'd be watching him, he's bringing guys in and then with his handle, there are times he'll hezzy. There are other times that like before I'll even have a chance to look, he is there. He's getting to the elbow. And that's something that similar to how I talked about his passing. I'm looking for things that translate. You can be doing mm-hmm. these things at a college level. You can have brought it in from the high school level to make it stick there. But, as you were talking about, it's nowhere close to Fox's as time to develop. He's had to go through those growing pains, as a lot of young guards do. But I think Mintz will be able to break guys down, not just in, you know, a four-on-three bent court situation, not just on a transition. There will be times that you can put Mintz out there against NBA bigs who can step out and even switch a bit, and... By being able to just manipulate them with that element of his pace, he can open up the passing. He can get to a driving lane, or he can even get to his floater, which is, I'm not going to put too much of a cap on what I think it can be as a weapon for him already, because he deploys it from a whole number of angles, and that's just another little wrinkle that makes the fact that he can switch his pace even more usable. I'm glad we got into the floater discussion. I think this is one that, you know, I can call back to someone that we've already talked about here in Jaden Ivey, where that was a real concern for him, where, okay, you know, elite athlete can get to the rim, essentially at will, you know, I believed in his jumper more than some people heading into his sophomore year that turned out to be better than certainly than it was his freshman year. But the question with him was, okay, if he is forced off the three point line, and he can't get all the way to the basket, what can he do at a high level, right? And, you know, that's the kind of thing where if you're going to be a lead guard in the NBA, you need to have some kind of counter if you're forced out of, you know, the areas you're most comfortable in. But 
even more starkly, you need to be able to do at least something at all three levels, right? And with Judah Mintz, his floater is good enough that it's easy to sort of imagine, okay, you know, if he's forced, you know, away from the basket, if he can't get all the way to the rim, he has something that he can do when he's trapped in the mid range. And, you know, we'll get to some of the sort of third level perimeter beyond the arc stuff with Judah Mintz in a moment, but it is a really good sign that he has that ability to switch speeds and he has that counter, you know, with his floater that if he can't get all the way to the basket like he wants to, there's something that he can do rather than just sort of kick out and hope that somebody else can figure out the problem. And it wouldn't even work as this viable counter if his drives didn't have the kind of pizzazz. He didn't have the ability to do the same kind of contorting when he's in the lane and in that middle area. If he wasn't doing the same things at the rim, it wouldn't be as convincing guys would be able to play up on him in that way. And yeah, I think the floater from day one when he's playing, I mean, this year it'll be easily one of his bread and butter items, but yeah, he's going to be able to use that as a weapon and force people to come up, make the defense do a little bit more of what he wants at that next level too, because he's crafted it. It has touch. He can take it off the glass. He can hit it from different angles. It really is that versatile weapon for him outside of just the fact that he can finish it. Who knows what kind of all crazy angles. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the finishing is a huge part of it. And as you mentioned in the piece, you know, good, but not great number is what you say, which I think is, you know, a good way of putting it in that, you know, again, he's not some ridiculous, like 60 plus percent finisher at the rim as a guard, but ultimately given how often he gets there, you know, 55.2% is, is decent enough. I mean, especially given some of the other parts of his game that we'll get into, you know, that's given his combination of ability to finish at the rim and ability to get there, you know, it'd be nice if he can improve in that regard, but there are certainly other areas that I think we would both agree might be a bit more of a focus area for him than, than that. Yeah, it certainly wouldn't hurt, as you're saying, if he is coming into the season He's going to still be the guy who is handling the ball so often for Syracuse. If he starts to show in the non-con slate right at the beginning of ACC play that he's put on a bit of weight, he's able to not only get the angles, but a lot of his shots were hard on him. He's bending in ways that I would need a few months of yoga to also be able to get to. (laughs) But if he's generating easier rim attempts and that percentage, that's where it would be oh, he's taken another good but not great strength and sharpened that point. Not to the point where the rest of the things, such as his shooting, namely, would be irrelevant, but it certainly serves as a really excellent way for a player like Mintz to hedge some of his deficiencies, would be to sharpen some of his strengths to the point where they are notable amongst everyone who could be in the draft pool amongst a lot of guys will be at that next level. Yeah, it's. I'll, I'll be really interested to dive into those attempts too, given Syracuse as a team has flipped their script so dramatically in this offseason. We will definitely get to that with Syracuse in a moment. But yeah, I think that, you know, leads back to some of the conversations we were having earlier, right? About how if these guys come back, they're going to get nitpicked at a higher level their sophomore year than they were their freshman year. And so the main focus is going to be, hey, can you improve in this area where you really struggled? 
right? And if they don't improve, then that's seen as, you know, kind of a knock against them that, you know, why didn't you, you know, get better as a pull-up shooter? Just a completely random example, right? Like, that's the kind of thing where a lot of the focus will be on, okay, did you improve this area where you struggled? But in terms of his longer-term future, I mean, him going from good but not great around the rim to great around the rim, you know, it might not have as strong of an impact on his NBA floor as, say, what we're about to get into in a moment, but it would certainly help raise his ceiling if he goes from being someone who you're comfortable with, you know, attacking the rim, getting shots around the basket, going from that to being someone that you, you know, really want to have doing that as a lead guy rather than, you know, maybe a bench piece. Yeah. So we've sort of touched on it vaguely, but let's get into the shooting element here. And this this is going to be an interesting part of the mints evaluation, and I think particularly leads into the question of improvement and what people will be looking for Judah Mintz to do in his sophomore season that he didn't do as well in his freshman year. And this you know leads to a lot of the stuff we already been talking about. But again, I'm going to quote the piece: um, "Modern game requires guards to be more than just driving demons, right? The idea being, you know, and this is something that." I tend to talk about more with three-point shooting than driving, but it is just as relevant of if you're a one-trick pony in the modern NBA, they're going to find you're going to be played off the floor. There are going to be ways in which teams attack you in, you know, whichever your weaker area is. And so the pure three-point shooting specialists, you know, the Troy Daniels, the Anthony Morrows have been played out of the league. And the flip side with Judah Mintz is that, you know, it's become a cliche of cliches to say, you know, if he could just shoot, if he could just shoot, shooting is the swing skill, right? But with Judah Mintz in particular, I mean, you mentioned it with some of the elements of his driving game. Defenses can't just be keyed on him to do one thing. And if the shooting doesn't get better, then that's just going to be the focus of pushing him off the line, pushing him off the line, pushing him off the line. And you know, I talked about Jaden Ivey and how in terms of three-level scoring, the middle level of the scoring wasn't really there. For Judah, it's more about the perimeter shot. And especially for him as a 6'3 guard, it's he's going to have to be really spectacular in the rest of his game for that not to be an issue. And more to the point of the nitpicks of the returning sophomores, that is going to be the biggest nitpick with Judah Mintz's game. I think with Mintz's shooting, I'm not expecting the shooting to dramatically improve guys can come in hot numbers can bear out that he's hitting x percentage he's taking these i am more interested in the process by which he is going to be trying to improve his shooting he was never a shy shooter he knew that for him a lot of the shots a lot of the pie was going to go to him and that's great it allows him to feel it out in his freshman year to be taking the shots when the defense is giving it to him, whether in the mid-range or he when defenses go under on the screen, he was not shy about putting up those looks. The issues for me would come in the little bits on his jumper that slowly added up to leading to the fact that he was a minus shooter. He's great, and it's an interesting double-edged sword. The fact that he can do so much off balance at the rim and in the mid-range comes back to bite him when he's not fully getting his feet set or his feet are getting set and he's quickly rising up without taking like the time to balance his shot isn't broken there are guys that obviously have more mechanical things to work through in a way that's almost 
a little more of an eyebrow raiser that there wouldn't be the fact that he could go and really bring his elbow in, that he could go and make sure one of his heels wasn't completely raised. His jumper is fairly sound, and it still isn't a weapon. Yeah, I mean, I call myself a partial free throw truther, meaning, you know, there are free throw numbers tend to translate better from college to the NBA just because the volume is better. And, you know, the difference between, I've called it the Derek Williams principle in the past, which is a bit mean, but, you know, it gets the point across, right? Of if you, you know, hit 40% on 73 point attempts in one season, that can get you to go number two overall when it's not really an indication of where your shot actually is. The flip side with Judah Mintz, you know, 75% free throw shooter last year on a very healthy, almost six attempts per game, right? Good indication of touch. You know, his finishing around the rim, good indication of touch. His floater being the weapon it is, definitely a very good indication of touch. But I mean, you know, as you point out, it's a lot of it is consistency of him not having the same, you know, mechanics on his pull-ups that he does on, you know, spot-up shots, but also just not being consistent with, you know, how he gets into those looks. It's the kind of thing where, you know, you look at the free throw numbers, you look at his touch on the floater and you say, okay, this is someone who has good, good touch, right? As you say, it's not broken. It's not, you know, someone coming in and, you know, the ball just hits off the rim. Like it was fired out of a cannon, right? It's like, he knows he's good enough with his touch that he can, you know, he can make those shots, but it's a matter of consistency. And as you say, that's almost more worrying than like, yeah, he has a really bad elbow flare. And as soon as he fixes that, his jumper is going to look a lot better. Especially the way the game continues to change second by second, being able to have a pull up three pointer as a lead ball handler has become not even like half the guys have it. It's kind of the floor of, a tool you have to be able to use if a defense, even at the college level, is going to respect you as someone who can orchestrate an entire offense. Mince right now, that is something that defenses are able to bank on him not hurting them on. If he can make that, I don't think there's a certain threshold of 40%, as we talked about, he's going to get to. It's more about making his three-point attempts somewhat threatening it's about taking that step and doing so and even when i would watch like because mid-range i think can be as interesting of a window into how a guy gets into his shots as shots from deep a lot of three-pointers they can swing momentum but mid-range when the game slows down is where a lot of guys do need to have that proficient few moves the combos the counters to be able to get to those shots I wasn't exactly floored by the, the, the combos that Mintz had and even found that he had a very notable habit of doing just like a quick pump fake getting into his jumper. Not an efficient move for him right now. He's not someone, as I mentioned, he's not the size of DeMar DeRozan. He doesn't obviously have the immaculately worked turnarounds of Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant. But he relies on it to the point that it's a little bit exploitable. If you can get him to get into that pump fake, just like some of his other pull-ups, it's going to be off balance. He's going to be hunting a foul, maybe. And I think he's got to get away from a little bit of the gimmicky mindset of the shooting that he tried pull-up-wise last year. He's going to be 
the guy who is handling the ball for the Orange again. He'll have had all off season to spend working on that consistency, making it a little bit calmer on his jumpers instead of fancy feet, instead of getting hurried into it. That's what he needs to show, that it's not so much of a mystery box of what is going to happen on these attempts. There's got to be that consistent floor, or else it's going to be something that no matter how well he finishes at the rim, hits his floaters, runs an NBA or NCAA offense, teams are going to be probably asking him in the pre-draft process, looking into that film and wondering, why is this still something coming up? Why is this something we can still point to in the second year? I think that's the real elephant in the room here is because of Mince's size and Mince's game, he pretty much has to be someone that you can reliably have the ball in their hands to run the offense. I mean, we'll get into the defense and the difficulties with trying to glean anything from his defensive tape last year. But, you know, from what we've seen, I think it's pretty clear that he's not going to be a Davion Mitchell, right? He's not going to earn his way into the NBA based on his defense. And given that he's not going to earn his way into the NBA based on his defense and given that he's not big enough to be anything more than pretty much an exclusive one, you know, maybe an off guard in the right environment, but to even create the situation for him to have the right environment to be an off guard, he needs to get on the floor period. And, you know, if he isn't more of a threat, you know, with the ball in his hands beyond the arc, then he's just not going to get the defensive attention that he will need to be able to showcase, you know, the rest of his skill set. And, you know, that I think comes into play with, you know, again, the spacing stuff, as you mentioned, a lot of it is, it matters a lot less if he's hitting two threes a game at a decent level. It's more about will defenses pay attention to you, right? Like the example I go back to again and again is Rajon Rondo. The one year he shot 37% on three-pointers. And it's like he shot 37% on three-pointers because he took like 100 of them all year. And every single time there wasn't anybody within 10 feet of him. And so it's like, okay, you know, for the for the two out of five, give or take, that you're hitting every three games, right? Like the defense is letting you take that shot. And the other 90 possessions that you're on the floor when the defense is completely ignoring you and giving you five feet of space because they know you won't fire unless you have 10 feet of space, right? It doesn't help the spacing all that much. It's just, you know, six points, you know, every game or every two games that you get on those possessions. And the rest of the time, you're just clogging up the floor. And part of it, I can, I really agree with the fact that the volume is a key element to looking at shooting. Part of the role that he played was setting up Gerard. I mean, he took 231 threes last year. He knew what his role was alongside his backcourt mate. It's going to change. Yeah. We've poked around it. It's going to be something where Mints can't just be hoping that a lower volume spike to have maybe a phantom percentage will do. It's got to be an actual adjustment and actual improvement for that shot to be in consideration for lead guard duty. So before we wrap things up, let's do our best to try and try and evaluate the defense. And, you know, we've hinted at it time and time again, and we can just get to it here. It is really difficult to evaluate any defensive prospect in the Jim Beheim system. And that won't be the system anymore, but 
for me in particular, I really struggled with evaluating guards on that team because, you know, a lot of the sort of counting stats were boosted by guys just getting the opportunity to gamble and jump passing lanes. It's like, okay, Jim Ince's, you know, pure steals numbers look really good. And, you know, something that I tend to mention frequently is that steals rates from NCAA to the NBA translate at a higher rate than pretty much any other statistic. And I know my number is out of date because it's something that I memorized a while ago, but basically like 91%, give or take, if you're a really good steals guy at a lower level, you know, be that NCAA or professional league overseas, that's going to translate to the NBA the vast majority of the time. The problem is, you know, a lot of that other 9% of the time comes, I mean, even specifically with Syracuse guys. I mean, you know, it's the kind of thing where, okay, you're in a system where you're sort of being, you're being helped out a lot in the steals department, but in terms of actually sticking with your man, being a point of attack defender, that's not even something we got to see him do that much at the college level. You know, there's some tape from him being a point of attack guy in high school, but for the most part, that's just not, you know, what he was tasked with doing defensively. And it's very difficult to tell how much of his athleticism can translate to the defensive end because he wasn't being asked to fill a role that he'll fill in any capacity on any NBA team. Yeah, it leaves us and other evaluators with the job of taking hints that we saw and having to play hypotheticals, having to assume what can translate. Because, I mean, with a 2-3 like that, the basically any steal that I saw of his were these, he jumped the passing lane at the correct time. You can start to fill in maybe. He has some instincts to be reading off ball. But these weren't some jump out of nowhere Kawhi Leonard steals these were ones where he was able to get his admittedly solidly plus reach he doesn't have any kind of Gumby Luffy from one piece extension but it's long enough that he can at least not have it be a mark against him I really would want to see him and will be really excited to see him on an island that is the last thing a coach would ever want to say, but yeah. <laughs> for an evaluator, it's going to be the kind of, those plays will tell us a lot more. I'm going to be really interested to see if that same change of direction, the way his hips can be fluid on his drives, and if the strength that he has, he's not exactly a sturdy, stout, well-built like built guy, and like his legs are his core. How is he going to hold up? He's going to have these times now. There's never going to be any shot blocking you'd hope for him. Even if he gets a higher steal rate at like an NBA level, those could be more like empty numbers. Those could be ones right. where it is a gamble that pays off compared to the other times that he's been making those gambles and defenses or offenses then make him pay. I am probably... A little more bullish on the chance for him to be a defender, having watched him so much. And by that same token, if he comes out and at the top of the key, guys are headed right towards the rim, it will not surprise me. It will be something that shouldn't surprise a lot of other people, potentially given the reps he's gone there too. He had spent a whole year trying to be the best version of himself assumedly that he could in that 2-3 system. 2-3 a man, so different. He'll be 
He's obviously played man before he's played basketball for as long <laughs> as he has. And it's going to show what kind of translatable ability he's going to have. And it'll show soon. It's not going to be something like his shooting where we'll have to watch over a few games, wait till conference play to really be able to see if he's made those adjustments. It'll be apparent from the first game that either of us or any of us listening tune into with Mintz guarding the ball and whatever that result will be. Yeah, you mentioned translatability, and I think that's really the key one here. Ultimately, if Mintz can show this season that he's, you know, let's just say average for the sake of argument, right? You know, he shows up and, you know, makes some good bets on gambles in the passing lanes, gets blown by a few times, but, you know, he has solid athletic tools, you know, expecting him to be able to, you know, leverage his athleticism, his flexibility to be a solid defender. It's not too much of a reach. And if he's an average defender, there are a lot more contexts where he makes sense for an NBA team to give him a shot rather than if he's a turnstile and the shooting doesn't improve dramatically, right? Then it becomes a thing of, okay, is someone who can admittedly create good looks for others, but is essentially league average in terms of shooting efficiency himself and is an atrocious defender, that's a whole lot harder to make a spot for yourself in a rotation versus, you know, if he's an average or, you know, maybe he even becomes an above average defender. Why not? Let's get optimistic here. I mean, then the sort of outcome, the conceivable outcomes for him are much wider, right? There's a world in which, okay, you know, he's good enough on offense that if he's a solid defender, you know, maybe he can be a starter in the right context, right? If the defense doesn't get to a point where it's average, that's a lot harder to see. If the defense doesn't get above bad, that's where I struggle to see even what rotation he'd fit into the end of, because he needs to provide a lot on the offensive end to make up for being a turnstile defensively. And I think when thinking about what rotations, what spots he could fill, He's coming back for a second year, but he's still a guy that will really benefit from some G League time in that first, maybe even second year. I would personally feel that if he isn't showing those defensive changes now, it's going to be a much tougher hill for him to climb to do that once people are faster, once the systems on offense are that much more punishing. So just like with the shooting, it's it's a make-or-break time in a sophomore year. Sure, for other guys that are coming into their freshman year where we might not have seen as much defensive tape, where we just might not know, it does hurt him that he played that freshman season in that sense. But it's also in the same way that you can come out after a freshman year, maybe mask some of those things you're still working on. He will have no more room to mask. The full Judah Mintz experience, trademark, will be there for <laughs> us to watch. And yeah, it's it's all about the results for that defense and for that shooting. All right. Anything else you want to cover here before we wrap this one up? I think just thinking about, I've touched on it just once or twice. Syracuse has had such a shift in what their team is going to look like that it has bred even more uncertainty towards parts of Mince's game in a really fun way. Bringing in J.J. Starling, having that switch to man, bringing in Naheem McLeod, there's going to be a lot that is different 
so much of what I had seen on the tape come to expect from what was going to happen on plays and even what Mintz could expect of who he would be able to dump the ball off to, who could be a safety valve like Gerard. He is going to have to adjust his game. And even if the shooting, even if the defense are still red flags, being able to maybe adjust to play next to Starling, who is a lot more similar to Mintz than to Gerard in terms of how they play. Starling can shoot, but not in any way that would make a defense be magnetized to him. Having a bit more chemistry, having the ability to play off ball, which really wasn't a lot of what Mintz was asked to do, given his skill set, it will give him just that tiny little, well, it will give him just a bit more of a chance to be a more diverse offensive weapon. And it makes me really excited to watch Syracuse anytime. I love the consistency of a team that builds. I love the unpredictability of a team that blows up and rebuilds. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the Magic 8-Ball experience, right? (laughs) Shake it up and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, and it might be a try again, ask later, but eventually (laughs) the answers will come out. All right. Well, he is Rowan Kent. You can find his written work, of course, on noceilingsnba.com, and you can find him on Twitter at Rowan Kent. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on noceilingsnba.com as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback regarding the deep dive specific portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.